This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. I know you're here for murder cases, but I figured I'd take this opportunity to remind any of you lovely people listening that it is December and you need to get your packages mailed here pretty quick. Especially if you're shipping internationally. Write clearly, don't procrastinate, and for fuck's sake, be nice to your delivery workers. This time of year is hell for them, and the last thing they want to deal with is bitchy customers who waited until last minute to ship their Christmas gifts. Oh, and this is the second episode I'm recording tonight because procrastination got the best of me and I fell behind schedule. So if my voice gives out, fucking deal with it. Be glad you get an episode this week. My extent of knowledge about Minnesota is the hilarious accent, Midwesterners and their pop, the inability to properly pronounce words that end in A-G. It's flag, goddammit. Why is that difficult? I guess I am the pot calling the kettle black, aren't I? Midwesterners can probably pronounce mountain with the T in it. Lutefisk is also a thing, and it sounds disgusting. I only know that one thanks to King of the Hill. Like most other states, Minnesota has an odd history with the death penalty. We've talked a bit about double and triple executions, but this state once put down 39 people on the same day. How fucking insane is that? Everyone executed in Minnesota was hanged. I'm pretty sure the electric chair was available before they abolished the death penalty in 1911, but I may be incorrect on that, so don't quote me. There have been many attempts to get the death penalty reinstated over the last 110 years, mostly in high-profile cases, but these attempts have been unsuccessful. I find that kind of surprising considering many Minnesota residents tried to burn their state to the ground back in 2020 after a murder was committed. Could you hear those air quotes? It wasn't a murder. At most, it was incompetence, which carries a separate charge. And I just lost my two remaining subscribers. Anyway, many Minneapolis residents put a price on the head of the man that they deemed guilty of this murder. Vigilante justice is okay in their eyes, but they won't reinstate the death penalty. Hell of a place, the Midwest. So grab a hunting rifle and a self-defense rifle. Much like Michigan, you might need both depending on where we end up in the land of a thousand lakes. Last meals are for everyone. We don't discriminate. So our first case today follows a storyline that we've all heard before. Hell, I've told you a story or two just like this one. Men often kill for sex. Women kill for love, but sometimes they kill because they married a drunk Polish guy with too many kids and can't deal with the stress anymore. Marianne Everts Wright was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina in 1820. This is where she spent a good chunk of her life. She ended up getting married while still living in Fayetteville, but her husband was killed in a railroad accident. After her husband's untimely passing, she moved out to Illinois, but this wasn't her last stop. 
at the behest of her nephew, who was sick with typhoid fever, and moved up to St. Paul, Minnesota. She met and married a man named Stanislaus Bilansky, who was one of the first Polish settlers in the area. The internet wasn't around back then, so she had no way of knowing that Eastern Europeans survive on nothing but vodka and pickles. Stanislaus was a heavy drinker. He owned a cabin in St. Paul that doubled as a bar and a grocery store. You know, like most places did in the early 1800s. The young man had been married before and was left to take care of his three kids when his second wife got tired of his bullshit and divorced him. The kids were often left for Anne to take care of as their father was frequently drunk or sick or both. Stanislaus fell ill in March of 1859. Initially, he thought it was indigestion. Keep in mind, they didn't have Pepto-Bismol during this time. A mild stomach ache was a death sentence. So he carried on with his normal habits, drinking alcohol and eating Grafenberg pills, whatever the fuck those are. Are they 1850s ecstasy? Because I could, uh, I could go for some of those. Being a devoted wife, Anne cried at his bedside and made arrangements with her husband about what to do with the kids if he passed on. Stanislaus Bilansky died of what a coroner's jury would call natural causes on March 11, 1859. Didn't take long for everyone to become suspicious of Anne, though. She was questioned about why she didn't call a doctor toward the end of her husband's illness. An inquest was also held, and three witnesses were questioned, including Anne's nephew, a housekeeper, and a neighbor named Lucinda Kilpatrick. This neighbor would claim to have seen Anne buying arsenic at a local drugstore about a week before Stanislaus became sick. Anne would defend herself, saying that she had bought the poison at the request of her husband because they had rats in their cellar. They decided to exhume Stanislaus to get a better look at him. A single crystal was found that resembled arsenic, but the doctor examining the man was skeptical that he'd been poisoned. This is the 1850s, though, and it didn't take much to convince a jury that Anne needed to be charged. Her trial was set for May 23rd. The prosecution in Anne's case claimed that she had intentionally bought the arsenic to kill her husband. Comments had allegedly been made in passing in which Anne stated she was considering murdering Stanislaus. And because this story isn't spicy enough already, the prosecutor also claimed that Anne had been having inappropriate relations with her nephew. Both the housekeeper and Anne's neighbor Lucinda were called to testify for the state. The housekeeper claimed that Anne prepared all of her husband's meals separately from her own and made sure to wash his dishes separately as well. She also said that Anne didn't treat Stanislaus the way a woman should treat her husband. After all the testimony was heard, the all-male jury took just six hours to come back with a verdict of guilty. Anne showed no emotion when the verdict was read. Her attorney asked for a new trial, but that was denied. So he went to the Supreme Court to attempt to block the judge from imposing the death penalty. The Supreme Court declined to intervene, but Anne managed to escape from the county jail and was on the run for almost a week before being captured. Mary Ann Bilansky was executed by hanging on March 23, 1860. 
She tried desperately to plead her case at her sentencing hearing, saying, if I die in this case, I die an innocent woman. I don't think I have had a fair and just trial. You know, this ain't quite the same level as touching a dead body to see if it bleeds and being convicted based on that, but she might have a point. Science back then was definitely not what it is now. I guess that's kind of what she gets for banging her nephew, though. Anne tried to get a private execution, but this was during an era when public executions were seen as a deterrent. Around a hundred people came to watch her meet her maker. She was left to dangle from the noose for 20 minutes before being buried in an unmarked grave. Anne was the only woman to be put to death by the state of Minnesota. There is nothing available on Anne's last meal. Her last words were, I die without having had any mercy shown me, or justice. I die for the good of my soul and not for murder. Your courts of justice are not courts of justice, but I will yet get justice in heaven. Those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. This next case, well, identical crimes have taken place thousands of times in the years since it happened. Minnesotans aren't subject to the same punishment for this crime anymore, but it still happens. Ironically enough, the story I'm about to tell you took place in Minneapolis. Y'all know how I feel about big cities by now. Thomas Tollefsen was a 28-year-old streetcar driver who had originally come from Norway. Strangely enough, and this is a totally random fact, my great-great-grandfather came to the U.S. from Denmark in the early 1900s and drove a trolley for the Utah Transit Authority. What a weird coincidence. Thomas likely came here for the same thing as every other immigrant, the American dream. He married a woman named Christina Nelson in February of 1887, and I'm sure the couple was looking forward to starting a family. Thomas was described as a handsome fellow and as brave and as generous as a man can be. On the night of July 26, 1887, a fire broke out in downtown Minneapolis, and the streetcars were running a bit behind schedule. The one Thomas was driving didn't reach the last stop of the night until midnight. Shortly before he arrived at his final stop, Thomas received warning from another streetcar driver that he might run into some trouble as this other driver's car had been derailed by pieces of wood laying on the tracks. Waiting in a cemetery near Cedar Avenue and Lake Street, near the end of the railway line, were three brothers, Tim, Peter, and Henry Barrett. The Barrett family was described as peculiar. This was 1800s speak for lawless and degenerate. At least two members of the family had done time in prison. Thomas had no way of knowing any of this, but it didn't take him long to find out just how lawless these men were. The brothers approached him outside of the cemetery. Tim and Peter were armed with guns. Tim shot Thomas once in the chest and once in the thigh with no warning. He died instantly. After the murder, the brothers wandered around the cemetery for a while before taking their stolen box of cash back to their sister's house and burying it in the basement. Peter, who was just 16 at the time, decided it would be in his best interest to run off back to Nebraska to be with his mother. 
Henry was arrested for an unrelated crime. He'd been caught operating a blind pig, which sounds ridiculous, but this is what they called an unlicensed liquor business. Tim had also been locked up after committing several robberies in the area. While behind bars, Henry decided to spill the beans on what he and his brothers had done. No one really knows why he did this. Maybe it was a guilty conscience or fear of the noose. Knowing that his confession would likely result in the three of them being hanged, he went on to tell the police everything and claimed that he had very little to do with the crime. Detectives were sent to Omaha to find Peter and return him to Minnesota. On December 6, 1887, Peter and Tim were indicted for first-degree murder. Their trials took place separately and both were found guilty despite the defense claiming that their brother's testimony was a most damnable conspiracy. Henry was never charged. Isn't it crazy what a little honesty could do for you back then? Timothy Barrett and Peter Barrett were executed by hanging on March 22, 1889. Tim was 25 at the time of his death, and Peter was 18. So many young lives lost in this story, over a measly $20. Probably a lot of money back then, but that's still not an excuse. Thomas's widow, Christina, went on to marry a man named Morris Lansbury. The couple wanted to attend the hanging, but women weren't permitted to witness executions at the time. There is no information on the last words or last meals of the Barrett brothers. Their mother chose to have them buried in Nebraska. One of these days, I'm going to do a whole episode on botched executions. I've covered a handful of them. Jesse Tafaro sticks out in my memory. What a horrible way to die. This next case is one that helped bring about the end of the death penalty in Minnesota. This one has a little bit of everything. Friendship, scandal, betrayal, and maple leaves. Shout out to my Canadians on Rumble. Love you guys. I want you to believe that I love you now as much as I ever did. It won't be long before we will be together. William Williams, yep, that's actually his name, was born in Cornwall, England in 1877. He moved to St. Paul, Minnesota to work as a miner and caught diphtheria in 1904. This led to some time in the hospital. While here, he befriended a young man named John Keller, who was also in the hospital recovering from diphtheria. The two became close and spent the next two years living together in St. Paul. They often traveled to Winnipeg, Manitoba. In case you haven't put the pieces together yet, Williams had stronger feelings for John than just friendship. Anyone who thinks that homosexuality isn't tolerated now is incredibly stupid. The alphabet soup people get an entire month to celebrate something that could have gotten them killed just a couple hundred years ago. John's father obviously did not approve of this relationship. He told John that he was no longer allowed to travel with Williams and that he was to return home at once. Williams wasn't about to leave the young man alone. He was in love, after all. We all know what dumb shit love can make you do. In 1905, Williams wrote a handful of letters to John, expressing his love and asking that the young man join him in Winnipeg. 
Mixed in with the romance and Zainzucht, that's a German word. Translated literally, it means longing, but it's one of those words that kind of loses its meaning in English. Were threats. Williams vaguely made threats against John's life, should he not come up to Canada to be with him. One of these threats, taken straight from one of these letters, reads in part, Keep your promise to me this time, old boy, as it is your last chance. You understand what I mean, and should have sense enough to keep your promise. Is that not the creepiest shit you've heard today? God damn. I get weird BDSM vibes from this guy, and not the fun kind, the make a non-consensual skin soup kind. John's parents made it clear that the boy was not to respond to the letters. In April of 1905, Williams made his way back to St. Paul from Winnipeg. He showed up to the Keller home with a gun in his hand and rage in his soul. John was shot in the back of the head while laying in bed. His mother was also shot, but lived for a week before succumbing to her wound. Thankfully, John's father was not home at the time and was spared from this carnage. Williams went to the police station shortly after the crime and confessed that he had shot someone. He was arrested and charged with premeditated murder. He pled, not guilty, by reason of emotional insanity. Let me tell you something about emotional insanity, because I go through bouts of it from time to time. I suffer from pretty severe anxiety. Sometimes there's a reason for it, sometimes it strikes me at random. A few weeks ago, I started to panic while I was at work, having irrational thoughts of my husband not loving me anymore and just using me to get through the difficult shit we're currently facing. I had a full-on mental breakdown while still on the clock overthinking this shit. What spurred this? Me picking up on weird vibes. That's literally it reading a text message the wrong way and misinterpreting his rush to get to work on time as not wanting to spend time with me. Love makes you retarded, to be blunt. Or maybe that's the anxiety. But I doubt either of those things would ever make me kill anyone. Williams claimed that on the night of the murder, he'd been drinking heavily and hadn't been sleeping. A doctor who examined Williams said that he didn't know why he shot Johnny Keller, only that he wanted the boy to come with him. Let's not turn this kidnapping into a murder. Oops, too late. Fucking psychopath. His defense didn't work, and he was found guilty. This landed him a death sentence. On December 8, 1905, the Minnesota Supreme Court upheld his conviction and sentence, but a single judge with a dissenting opinion made it a point to state that this crime might not have been premeditated. It may have been a crime of passion. Just for your information, Winnipeg to St. Paul is seven and a half hours by car. This is back before cars, I think. That's plenty of time to plan a murder. William Williams was executed by hanging on February 13, 1906. His execution, as you may have guessed from comments I made a few minutes ago, was botched. They fucked up a hanging happens a lot more than you'd think. The rope used to hang him was too long, and Williams hit the floor after the trap door opened. Three sheriff's deputies had to hold the rope while Williams slowly strangled to death. It took 14 minutes. This execution was used to argue that capital punishment was cruel and unusual and should be abolished. 
William Williams was the last person to be put to death in Minnesota. I can't find anything on his last meal, but the last words Williams spoke as he stood atop the gallows were, Gentlemen, you are witnessing an illegal hanging. I am accused of killing Johnny Keller. He was the best friend I ever had, and I hope I meet him in the other world. I never had improper relations with him. I am resigned to my fate. Goodbye. I find all of that pretty difficult to believe, but I wasn't there, so who knows. Are y'all hungry yet? I know I haven't given you a last meal this entire episode. They're hard to find in states that abolished the death penalty a century ago. Makes my job really fucking difficult. I did manage to find one for you, though. We will be crossing state lines to get it. Robberies were a good way to make money during the post-World War II era. So much easier than going out and getting a job, I suppose. But if you've been here before, you'll know that these robberies are often poorly executed, no pun intended, and result in a quick drop and a sudden stop. Minnesota had abolished the death penalty about 35 years before this next case took place, but in case you weren't aware, South Dakota still has it. George Sitz was a well-mannered child, and his classmates always assumed he'd do well in life. After school, he'd hurry home to help out his grandmother with chores. He was a hard worker and had a lot of potential. Typical Midwestern kid, it looks like. Sitz was born in a small town on the Iowa border called Leroy, Minnesota. He was a bit of a bookworm and taught himself how to handle guns. Again, typical Midwestern kid. As a teenager, Sitz fell in love with the sport of boxing. You can almost hear Steven Crowder talking about Joe Lewis now. What I'm wondering is how did this Minnesota farm boy go from small town hero to criminal? There's no record of abuse or some other traumatic event. People just snap sometimes, I guess. Sitz landed his first conviction in Iowa at the ripe old age of 19. He'd been caught receiving stolen goods and concealing a firearm. He spent just 90 days in jail before being released back into the wild. One night in jail scares some people straight, but others don't seem bothered by being kept in a cage. After this first conviction, Sitz went back to prison, this time on a burglary charge. He was supposed to serve 10 years, but used some of that Midwestern charm to talk the parole board into letting him out in 1941. His freedom wouldn't last long, and he was back in the slammer in less than a year because of a parole violation. Something clicked this time, and he spent the next three years making plans to get his shit together and live an honest life. After getting back out of prison in 1944, Sitz made his way to Oregon to find work. While here, he got married, but this lasted about as long as his freedom from prison, and he was separated from his wife very soon after they tied the knot. Sitz met another young woman in 1945 and corresponded with her, I'm assuming through letters? They didn't have the internet back in the 40s, so that seems most likely. The young man decided to head back home to Minneapolis, where this woman lived. Upon arriving back home, Sitz was told that she'd moved to Texas. Remember earlier when I said he was a bookworm? Well, 
romance novels were his thing. I think you know where this is going. Sitz decided that the best course of action was to become an outlaw and rob his way down to Texas from Minnesota. Spoiler alert, he didn't get very far. Didn't even make it to Iowa. On December 12, 1945, Sitz robbed a liquor store somewhere in Minnesota. Details on this are pretty sparse, but it's clear that something went wrong and the clerk, Eric Johansson, was killed during this robbery. Sitz did his best to get away, but only managed to get about 60 miles out of town before he was caught. Rather than fight the charges in court and risk a jury judging him for his past convictions, Sitz pled guilty to second-degree murder and was given a sentence of life in prison. I have to assume with the possibility of parole. Guilty pleas usually do that. So where's the last meal and what state line are we crossing? Well, Sitz, while sitting in the county jail, enlisted the help of three other inmates to break out they'd somehow managed to get a hacksaw in there. The prison pockets on these men must have been huge. No way I could fit a whole hacksaw in my ass. The men managed to saw through two of the bars, keeping them captive. Two car thieves and someone locked up for forgery helped a murderer escape. And they got to see their accomplice's love for boxing shine through when he punched a dispatcher in the face on the way out. Sitz stole a car just two days after he broke out of jail and headed for the Black Hills. He was seen in a small town called Medalia, but managed to evade the police. Roadblocks were set up and a stolen car was found that was believed to have been the one Sitz was driving. They still couldn't catch him. Sitz drove all over South Dakota, getting gas wherever he could find it. After a rancher reported his gun stolen, the police knew that the man they were looking for had made it to the western half of South Dakota. A roadblock was set up in Spearfish, and Sheriff Dave Malcolm was sent there along with Special Agent Tom Matthews to keep an eye out for Sitz. He was driving a green 1940 Ford coach and was described as having dark hair and being unshaven for a few days. This car, with this unkempt man, arrived as they thought it would, and Sitz got out of the driver's side. Obviously not wanting to go back to prison, he did what any smart criminal would do. He opened fire on the officers. Both of them were wounded, but still alive. Sitz finished them off with shots to the head before taking their money and weapons and fleeing into the woods. He set up a camp near Deadwood in an abandoned schoolhouse and burned his shoes to keep warm. I have to give credit where it's due. This guy is pretty fucking resourceful. Rather than wait around to be caught in the schoolhouse, Sitz made his way to the town of Deadwood and found a house to take shelter in. The house was owned by the Deadwood police chief, Ross Dunn, who ironically enough was out searching the hills for the man who took up residence in a cellar. Sitz was there for a week before he stole some shoes and took off. In February, the owner of a local gas station got in his car to find Sitz waiting for him with a gun. He demanded that the man drive him to Wyoming. Once they arrived in a town called Beulah, Sitz gave him $10 and told him to get out of the car. Now, I'm not super familiar with the eastern part of Wyoming, so I don't know exactly where they were, but 
I have to assume that $10 isn't going to cover a cab ride back into South Dakota. The man Sitz had taken hostage alerted the authorities very quickly after he was released. In early February of 1946, Sitz was arrested without incident in Wyoming and returned to South Dakota to face trial for the murder of Special Agent Tom Matthews. He later said that if he'd known the two men who approached him were police, he would have shot him. But since they were in plain clothes, he just assumed they were civilians who stopped to help him after he'd gotten stuck in the snow. The prosecutor in this case was a man named George T. Mickelson, who would go on to become the governor of South Dakota. Sitz was found guilty by his jury in less than three hours, and the judge handed down a death sentence. Because he was already condemned, there was no need to try him for the murder of Sheriff Dave Malcolm. Maybe they were keeping it in their back pocket in case something went wrong with the conviction and sentence for Tom Matthews. Prosecutors like to do that. It makes sense with murder cases. George Sidney Sitz was executed by electrocution on April 8, 1947. All he requested before a last meal was a clean shirt and a bar of soap wanted to die a clean man, I suppose. Though three other men had been sentenced to fry, Sitz was the first and last person to be electrocuted in South Dakota. The other men had their sentences commuted to life in prison. I don't want to spoil anything because we're not there yet, but South Dakota still has the death penalty and there is currently no moratorium. Their current governor is absolutely lovely and I hope she'll eventually wind up somewhere on a presidential ballot. Sitz had some pretty famous, pretty funny last words. This is the first time authorities helped me escape prison. His last meal was chow mein, bread with butter, tea, cake, and ice cream. You guys know how much I love weird town names. Minnesota has an abundance of them. The perpetrator in this next one is from a town called Sleepy Eye. This next case I want to talk about is very recent, so obviously there will be no death penalty. It's a weird one though. I only recall hearing Sword and Scale cover one case like this in all 400 or so episodes. On October 26, 2023, police responded to a call placed from a boat landing in Ridgely Township at about 1 a.m. When they arrived, they saw a man with cable ties around his neck standing next to a vehicle with a tube attached to the exhaust pipe. When they searched the vehicle, they found the body of a woman inside. According to the man they'd first encountered at the scene, the woman was his girlfriend. The man claimed that he and his girlfriend had made a suicide pact and bought the necessary supplies from a hardware store earlier that night. Surveillance footage would later confirm that. The man said that they drove out to the boat landing with the intent of committing suicide with carbon monoxide. That's probably the way I'd want to go if I ever took that route. It seems the most painless. But I guess it was ineffective in this case, so the man made a ligature out of cable ties. His girlfriend allegedly asked him to tighten the ligature in order to strangle her to death. It was about 30 minutes after she died that the man called 911. 
The preliminary autopsy showed the woman's cause of death to be asphyxiation due to ligature strangulation. This case is obviously very recent. Um, it, as of the time of recording, it was uh, like less than a month ago. So there isn't very much information available. Casey Delin Narvaez is facing felony counts of second degree murder with intent and aiding suicide. He has claimed that he came home from work on October 25th and smoked some weed before closing his eyes and waking up at the boat landing with something tied around his neck. Narvaez apparently also made up a story about being kidnapped because he was embarrassed that his attempt at suicide had failed. Minnesota law states that the charge of unintentional second-degree murder carries a maximum sentence of 40 years. Aiding suicide can get him an additional 15 years or a fine of up to 30 grand or both. If I happen to catch an update on this one, I'll throw it in a Rumble video. That's, uh, that's your cue to go subscribe on Rumble if you haven't already. There's one more recent one I'd like to throw in here for shits and giggles. This one is just sad. On March 28, 2022, a 35-year-old woman named Pichu Yates was found bleeding at a property in Champlin. When police arrived, they found a girl next to the woman screaming, he killed her. Pichu was a mother of three children. I hope to God that this girl next to her wasn't one of her kids. A witness in the case told police that she'd been on the phone with Pichu when the woman's husband, a man named James Neonte, showed up with a knife. The witness heard Neonte say he just wanted to talk before the line went dead. Neonte fled in his SUV and left it in a neighboring city. When police found it, they found a knife and a hatchet inside. Hours later, Neonte was arrested in Fargo... I'm assuming North Dakota. It says he was returned to Minnesota, so he crossed a state line somewhere. The charges laid against him were two counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, and one count of first-degree sexual misconduct. You're probably wondering why there are four separate charges. Well, the law is kind of ridiculous sometimes, and you can be charged with multiple counts of murder even if you only killed one person. In Neonte's case, there is a first-degree premeditated murder, a first-degree murder while committing domestic abuse with a past pattern of domestic abuse, second-degree intentional murder, and that sexual misconduct charge is in relation to past rapes of his wife, I think, from what I can tell, she wasn't sexually assaulted on the day she was murdered, but it had happened in the past. The full description of that charge is criminal sexual conduct in the first degree, penetration, fear of great bodily harm. So, you know, definitely not a dangerous guy. James Neonte is currently housed at the Hennepin County Jail. A jury found him guilty of the murder of his wife, plus the sexual misconduct charge, and he's awaiting sentencing. While trying to look this guy up, I found a second case against him that, well, made me sick. The charges in this one are first degree sexual misconduct with penetration, 
of a minor under 14 and another charge of first-degree sexual misconduct with penetration and fear of great bodily harm. He has a third case, but the only details I can find are that it was juvenile court. Shows a court appearance from November 14th of this year, so I have no idea what the fuck is actually going on in this one. Deontay is looking at life without parole, and I really fucking hope that's what he gets. That's gonna do it for Minnesota. I don't think I'd ever live there, but maybe I'd visit some of the more rural areas? I imagine they have some wicked wilderness up there. My neck is fucking killing me from recording two of these in one night. I need a proper desk and shit, but I'm broke, so, you know, if you want to send me money to buy a desk, I'll be forever grateful. Recording in this ghetto-rigged studio fucking sucks. If you enjoyed this episode, spam Facebook with it. Even if you don't have Facebook. I don't have Facebook. Make an account specifically to post this podcast everywhere. I'm available on Odyssey and most podcast apps, as well as Rumble, where you'll find my dollar store quality news videos. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. I'll hopefully be back next week with an episode about more Southern hospitality but if for whatever reason I'm not, keep me in your thoughts. Being chained to a desk for 12 hours a day is not as easy as it sounds. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by... My Ludafisk! ...survives. Sorry, I couldn't help it. Waited the whole episode to use that. See you next time. <laughs>